0: Matthew chapter six. By the way, I don't know if you noticed. Uh, I noticed on teletext last night uh, that uh, somebody's messing around with time today. Around around the noon time, they're actually changing the clocks and adding a whole second. So I'm going to give you a whole extra second today in the message. All right, just, I'm going to I'm going to use all the time I can get. All right, it's it's one of those leap seconds. I I, I don't understand why they do that. You know they got to keep time, mess around with time every once in a while, so they're doing that about noon today. So, if you notice a big change in your life, that's why. All right, all right. Matthew chapter six. We finally come to the middle section of the sermon. My question for you today, as we look at at uh, this part of Jesus' sermon, is this: Are you a hypocrite? Are you a hypocrite? I don't know if you've noticed this or not, but as we've been uh, going through the Sermon on the Mount here, there's, there is a wonderful wholeness uh, as well as an organization to Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. In chapter 5, Jesus has already described the incredible high standard of righteousness that is required of those who would be his disciples. You remember that high standard? The end of Matthew chapter 5, Jesus said, Be Perfect as his heavenly Father is perfect. Jesus said our righteousness needs to be superior to that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. Jesus told his disciples to pursue godliness since God himself is perfect. Now Jesus moves on here into chapter 6, and he's, he's looking at the outward acts of righteousness. What, what does it look like on the outside, if you will? he, He gives us a warning here. He warns of a great danger. Are you ready for this? Do you know what the danger is? The danger is hypocrisy. Hypocrisy. You see, in order to be his disciples, to be citizens of King Jesus' kingdom... Those who are his must actually practice their religion from the heart. It's not enough to just say, I'm doing it on the outside. You must practice from the heart. It's hypocritical to practice your religion in order to attract other people's attention. And Jesus is going to give us three illustrations of this in this passage for us today. Three illustrations. In our Bible passage today, Jesus is, is, is in fact, he's discussing three chief acts of Jewish piety. They are almsgiving, prayer, and fasting. We're going to look at those three individually in this passage today. These three acts really are forming a unit, and that's why I want to look at all three of them today. Uh, they're forming a unit, and Jesus is is giving us, a I think, a very clear outline here, and and so, as usual, nothing original with me. I'm borrowing Jesus' outline. All right, Jesus is following the same outline in all three of these illustrations he gives here. So, Jesus' outline kind of goes something like this. All right? First, he starts off with a warning to us to not seek people's praise. Don't seek people's praise. Then the result, well, to those who, who, who do and are seeking people's praise, Jesus says, you get your reward here on earth and that's all you get. And then the third point was Jesus gives us a command and the command is to perform these acts not publicly but privately. And then fourth, he ends with a promise. The promise is God will reward those who are doing these righteous acts in privacy. So, the first illustration that Jesus gives, or this first example of religious practice here, is almsgiving. Here's, here's the way I've worded it, okay? Uh, essentially, I'm, I'm kind of giving in, in, in the negative, right? But, but the point is this. Don't be a hypocrite by giving with the wrong motive. It is possible to do the right thing with the wrong motive. And that's what Jesus talks about here. The idea here of almsgiving is, is giving to the poor. In Deuteronomy chapter 15, verse 11, which is on the screen here, it says, uh, This is what the, the law of God actually stated, okay? It says, There will never cease to be poor in the land. Therefore, I command you, you shall open wide your hand to your brother, to the needy, and to the poor in your land. So Jesus agreed. As we see here in Matthew chapter 6 in a moment, he actually agreed that this is the Christian's duty. Jesus didn't say, well, you know, stop doing what the Old Testament says. No, remember, he didn't come to abolish and destroy the law. He came to fulfill it. He's agreeing with the Old Testament scriptures. This is the Christian's duty. He's assuming, in fact, that we will do this. And Jesus is saying, as you do this and you're, and you're giving to the poor, This is your attitude. This is how you need to go about it. So Jesus is concerned about how the giving will be done. He's not saying, you know, he's not trying to prove the point here of doing it. No, it's as you give, this is how you should do it. Okay, is that clear? I hope hope it is. So he starts off by giving us a warning here in uh, verse one, Matthew chapter six, verse one. The warning is this, essentially, don't seek People's praise. Don't seek people's praise. Look at verse 1. Jesus says, Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them, for then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. So the point Jesus is making here should be pretty obvious. He's, he's saying, Calling attention to your giving is actually hypocritical. He's saying it's hypocritical. Why why do people call attention to their giving? Because they want praise to be heaped on them. They want want to be praised by other people. They want the glory. They want people to to look at them and say, Wow, you must be really spiritual. The problem with that is what? God says, I will not give my glory to another. God deserves the glory and the praise. Not us. It's his money anyway. But there's a result. If, if you are one of these people who, who, who give to be seen by other people, Jesus says you will get only an earthly reward. That's all you're going to get is an earthly reward. Look at the last part of verse 1. He says, For then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. And then look at the last part of verse two, kind of saying a similar idea, in the last part of verse two, Jesus says, Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. So, my friend, if your motive is actually wrong, if if you do something good like giving money, and and you're doing it with the motive of you know people wanting to look at you and he praise on you, the act has no value. Not in eternity, anyway. You will receive no reward in heaven. That's what Jesus is saying. Uh, One commentator by the name of Plummer, he says it so well. I I love what he says here. Quote, They receive their pay then and there, and they receive it in full. God owes them nothing. They were not giving, but buying. They wanted the praise of men. They paid for it, and they have got it. The transaction is ended, and they can claim nothing more. End quote. So how do we avoid hypocrisy? This is obviously a problem. How do we avoid it? Well, look at God's command. God's command is found here in verse 2. Look at verse 2. Thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you give to the needy, Do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. Now, there's a few Jewish culture things going on in our passage today that hopefully I'll be able to explain to you. Remember, uh, Matthew being a a Jew, writing to Jews, naturally has a lot of cultural things that uh, you and I may not fully understand. I'll try to explain some of them to you. But this, this, uh, this is important to realize that by Jesus' day, almsgiving was an important part of temple and synagogue services. Just a normal part of it. Synagogues kind of functioned as social social agencies in the first century. You know, they didn't have a WINS back then. (laughs) Right? There, there There was no dole, so to speak. So... They, they needed to provide relief for poor, and, and, and it depended on contributions from other people in the community. So, when they would come into the temple or the synagogue, they would have a place to put their money. And it went to uh, the poor. Therefore, you know, this was something that was kind of natural uh, that uh, sometimes showy displays became connected with giving. There, for example, in, in Acts, you know of Ananias and Sapphira, right? That was an example of a showy display. They they wanted the honor and the glory. I mean, that was you think about that. I mean, it was a perfect way to be seen as spiritual and godly. Hey, you know, I'm sacrificing, giving some money to these these people who need it. You say, well, Jesus calls them these people hypocrites. Why why does he do that? Well, what is a hypocrite? Well, we need to define what a hypocrite is first, okay? And as I was studying this, I found uh, this quote from a commentator. It's helpful. Listen to this. Quote, A hypocrite originally was a Greek actor who wore a mask that portrayed in an exaggerated way the role that was being dramatized. For obvious reasons, the term came to be used. Of anyone who pretended to be what he was not. End quote. So sometimes they you, I don't know if you've ever seen these big white masks that got different uh, facial features on them. You know, they they could wear a white big white mask for somebody who was sad, happy, or whatever else. You know. Anyway, that's that's where the term hypocrite comes from. It came to be used of anyone who pretended to be what he was not. These people are pretending to be godly and spiritual, but They're not really, because they're doing it for the wrong motive. Well, verse 3 has another very strange statement, uh, an an idiom, in fact, that you may not understand. So let me try to explain this. What is this left-hand, right-hand contrast going on here in verse 3? Well, one commentator said this, quote, It is an idiom for total privacy, disregarding oneself entirely in the act of helping the poor, end quote. So this idea of not letting your one hand know what the other hand is doing is it's just it's a figure of speech if you will an idiom okay hopefully you get the idea the point is you know do it in total privacy if if that is at all possible God gives a promise to those who do give in privacy and that's found in verse 4 The promise is this that God will reward you no even if nobody else sees God will reward you. Look at verse 4. So that your giving may be in secret, it says, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. So what's more important? Let me ask you, what's more important? That you get your reward here on earth, which is praise of men, or you get your reward from God himself? Which would you rather have? Choice is up to you. In your motive. By way of application, I've got seven principles to guide us in giving. Okay? Seven principles to guide us in giving. Number one, when you give from the heart, you are investing with God. You're investing with God. You're investing in the so called bank of heaven. Luke chapter 6, verse 38, Jesus says, Give, and it will be given to you, good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, will be put into your lap. For with the measure you use it, it will be measured back to you. So when you give from the heart, you're investing with God. It's an it's a eternally secure place where neither moth nor rust or thieves can break in and steal. Number two, genuine giving is to be sacrificial. It's to be sacrificial. Okay, I hope you understand that generosity is not measured by the size of the gift. okay? I mean somebody could it's possible somebody could give a million dollars and not be sacrificing. You know, if they're a billionaire, for example. So size is not the important thing. It's what we actually possess. G- giving in comparison to what we actually possess. For example, let me give you an example. The widow. Jesus talked about a widow in the Bible who gave two small copper coins and she put them in the temple treasury. And Jesus was there. He saw what was going on. And he said, that that widow who gave the two small copper coins gave more than everyone else. Say, where is that in the Bible? It's on the screen. Mark chapter 12. Here's what Jesus said. Responsibility for giving has no relationship to how much a person has. No relationship to how much a person has. In fact, look what Jesus says in Luke chapter 16 here. One who is faithful in a very little is also faithful in much. And one who is dishonest in a very little is also dishonest in much. Sometimes we think, you know, hey, you know, I'll, I'll sacrifice to God when I become rich. Well, with that attitude, it's no wonder God doesn't make us rich. Because if if we're not going to be faithful with with everything that God does give to us, God's saying, you're not going to be faithful even if I did make you rich. So responsibility for giving has no relationship to actually how much you have. Number four, material giving correlates to spiritual blessings. Look what Jesus says in Luke chapter 16 again here. The very next verse says this, If then you have not been faithful in the unrighteous wealth, who will entrust to you the true riches? If you have not been faithful in that which is another's, who will give you that which is your own? Okay. So your, your material possessions that God has given to you to be a steward of uh, actually has spiritual benefits. Okay. There are spiritual blessings that come with how we steward and manage God's money and possessions think about that that's an amazing fact amazing blessing it's all God's you get to be the manager of it and how you manage it God will bless you according to how you manage that are you faithful wow that's amazing truth number 5 givings to be personally determined personally determined okay the church doesn't determine it (laughs) your banker doesn't determine that the pastor doesn't determine that okay Uh, you know the church constitution doesn't determine that (laughs) okay whatever else you can think of no it's that is your choice between you and god in fact look what second corinthians 9 7 first part of it anyway says says each one must give as he has made up his mind not reluctantly or under compulsion. Yeah, that's the New Testament principle. Giving's to be personally determined. Number six, giving's to be done cheerfully. It's to be done cheerfully. Hopefully, you uh, you don't come in and you put, if if you do it this way, put your money in an offering box or do it, uh, you know, from your bank to the church bank. However, you do it. You're not, hopefully you're not doing it, grumbling and complaining, you know, angry, you know that you're you're doing that. No, in fact, Second Corinthians nine seven b says God loves a cheerful giver, cheerful giver. Number seven, we're to give in response to need. Okay, you understand you don't have to give to everybody. Every charlatan that walks through our door, <laughs> uh, man, we used to get a lot more than we do now. That's because we used to do more. And every charlatan that came in trying to rip us off, who didn't probably really need it, some of them maybe did, I don't know. They, they tell all their friends, and then they come, and then they tell their friends, and before you know it, you're flooded with people who, who got all these sob stories. Okay, You don't have to give to everybody. We're only to give in response to actual needs. Christians are not responsible for lazy people. You understand that? In fact... 2 Thessalonians 3.10 says, If anyone will not work, neither let him eat. So you've got to try the best you can to determine who is really in need. I've had, I've had a guy walk in here. I've seen him a couple times. I don't know if he recognizes me or not. But he's coming here a couple times with the same story. Oh, I've come to Hamilton for my brother's funeral. Really? Well, I remember you were here a couple years ago for your brother's funeral. Why? Why are you asking for for petrol money? All right, you, you got to be careful with these people. All right. Uh, certainly, just don't throw money at them. All right. If, if you think somebody actually needs petrol money, do what I do. All right. You know, take them to the petrol station and fill up their tank for them, so they don't go and spend it on beer or drugs or something else that you don't want them spending it on. So give in response to actual need, all right? Those are just a few helpful biblical principles. So first of all, we see Jesus says, don't be a hypocrite in your giving. Don't do it with the wrong motive, just to be seen by people. Second of all, Jesus says, don't be a hypocrite by praying to be seen and heard. He gives us a warning again. Same same outline he used in the first illustration here. The warning is, don't seek people's praise. Look at verse 5. Verse 5. Jesus says, And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners that they may be seen by others. Jesus says, don't seek people's praise. Okay, Wrong motive. Wrong purpose, wrong goal. Okay? If you do, here's the result, Jesus says. The result is you're going to get only earthly rewards. Again, look at the end of verse 5. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. Okay? You get the reward now, which is praise of men, and that's all you get. That's all you get. So Jesus commands us here. Instead, do your praying privately. By the way, he's not (laughs) this doesn't mean you can't pray in church or at a prayer meeting or something like that, okay, with other believers. That's not what Jesus is saying, but Jesus is saying do don't don't be a hypocrite and only pray so that other people think you're spiritual and godly. So do your praying privately. Look at verse six. When you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Now, some of you might have a translation that says a closet. Let me explain that because uh, <laughs> uh, our closets, uh, most of our closets are pretty small. <laughs> so does Jesus literally mean, you know, Go and, 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 you know, cram yourself up next to the vacuum cleaner and, in uh, in you know, with the, the coats hanging over your head, the vacuum cleaner pushing in your gut and say, okay, here's your prayer closet. Oh, I can barely breathe in here. No, is that what Jesus is saying? Let me, let me try to explain this. I, I like the ESV uses the word room. Um, uh, what a, what a room or a closet is, was, was a small storage closet inside. Uh, These Palestinian houses that were, most of the time were just kind of, you talk about open plan living, that was open plan living. I mean, one big room, right? One room, essentially, and they'd have this little storage closet uh, that they could lock up. Essentially, the only room in the one-room house. It was also the most private part of the house. And Jesus is saying, that's where you pray. That's where you pray. What's the point? Why is Jesus even mentioning this? The, the point is, Jesus is stressing total privacy if you can attain that. And, and what's the purpose for this, by the way? Again, it's it's not so so other people see you praying. The point of this is actually for you to be able to commune with your Heavenly Father in privacy. That's the point. But the hypocrites didn't do that, did they? They, they would purposely put themselves in positions on busy street corners or at the busy synagogue or temple where other people were. And so, you know, when it, when it came time to pray, hey, you know, I want, I want the most amount of people to see me as possible. That's what they did. But Jesus says, do your praying privately. Do it in that the only room in your house that could be locked in, in, in a place of privacy do it there by the way you realize you can do it at other places okay jesus is not saying that's the only place you should pray okay i hope you understand that but the point is at all possible do it in privacy it's not the motive is the important thing here not to be seen and heard but to actually talk to god And so if you do your praying in privately, there is a promise. God will reward you. God will reward you. Look at the end of verse 6. The end of verse 6 says, Your Father, who sees in secret, will reward you. Well, this section on prayer doesn't end here. I'm sure you're familiar with this next section. Many people are. Uh, Maybe you even grew up in a church that... uh, would quote this almost every sunday what has come to be known as the lord's prayer it's not really the lord's prayer actually it's jesus didn't actually pray this this was a model prayer in fact jesus says pray like this okay he gives you a model this isn't the lord's prayer he didn't pray it he was trying to help his disciples you and me people like you and me to help us to know how to pray it's a model an example but jesus teaching style here he starts off by telling us not how to pray he actually starts off by telling us how not to pray (laughs) in fact look at uh look what he says here he says the first thing that jesus says how not to pray is he says don't be ostentatious the ostentatious is a wonderful english word it has the idea of we're not, don't be just outward or extravagant or just, don't just do it as a showy display for as many people to see as possible. Okay? Prayer's not to be a showy display for other people to look at you and pat you on the back and say all nice things about you and say, oh, you must be spiritual and godly. I wish I could be like you. No. Not the point. Jesus says in verse 5, when you pray, you must be—you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners that they may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received the reward. But when you pray, don't be ostentatious. Don't be just doing it outward and extravagantly for some showy display. Instead, when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret. Okay? Jesus says, don't be ostentatious that's not the purpose of prayer this prayer uttered in the most visible places like street corners and synagogues uh, with the goal of being seen and heard by other people is 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 just wrong jesus says we have uh, an example of this by the way christ told a parable of a pharisee and a tax collector maybe, i don't know maybe maybe it wasn't even a uh, maybe it wasn't even a parable maybe this was actually true i don't know but the bible says that the pharisee he he stood up and he prayed about himself as a result jesus says he had he had his reward he was noticed by the people that were standing by people praised him thought he was pious he's godly spiritual jesus said it was the tax collector who was actually justified not the not the pharisee the, ta- the tax collector He was was totally different. He didn't call attention to himself. Rather, he he prayed as he was standing off in a distance, in the most inconspicuous spot he could find. That's where he was praying. And his prayer was different from the Pharisees, too. His prayer was, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. So the tax collector, the Bible says, had his reward in heaven. That's in Luke chapter 18, in case you're wondering. So Jesus says, don't be ostentatious, and Jesus also says, number two, don't be repetitious. Don't be repetitious. Look at verse seven. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. Okay. A good example, I was trying to think of a good example of, of, Jesus talks about the Gentiles here, how they how they how they heap up these empty phrases as they're praying. I was trying to think of a of an example of this, and uh, to me, a good one is is the prayers of the priest of Baal in the days of Elijah. To me, that's a good example. You remember that Elijah confronts them on Mount, uh, um, on Mount Carmel. And uh, the 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 whole the whole challenge with the the prophets of Baal was, you know, call down fire from heaven on your sacrifice. Let's see who the real God is. Is Jehovah the real God? Is Yahweh the real God, or is Baal? So what did they do? Oh, they heaped up a lot of empty phrases together, didn't they? <laughs> they sure did. In fact, the Bible says in First Kings eighteen, they called on their false god from morning until noon. Wow. From morning until noon. You ever prayed that long? They did. They called. In fact, they were getting desperate and desperate, more and more desperate as, as noon was coming closer and it was almost Elijah's turn. They get more and more desperate. They're calling louder and louder and, and, and uh, noon's coming. And so they're really desperate now. And so they start cutting themselves with with whatever they got, a sharp whatever was sharp to cut themselves. Why'd they do that? They're trying to get Baal's attention. And some of them were even really stupid and apparently standing on top of the altar. If you really believe fire is going to fall from heaven, that's the last place you want to be. But that's where they were. Did Baal hear them? Of course not. He didn't hear them. They didn't he didn't answer their prayer because he's not real. <laughs> but anyway, that's that's an example of Gentiles heaping up all these empty phrases. Many Gentiles thought, you know the longer you pray, the more spiritual you are, the more God will actually hear you. Jesus says, "Don't do that. <laughs> Don't do that. Don't be repetitious in your prayers." So then Jesus tells us how to pray in verse starting in verse nine, all the way down to verse 13. Here is how you should pray. This is a model prayer that Jesus gives us. In this model prayer, there's actually six petitions. The first three petitions concern, uh, number one, God's honor, two, God's kingdom, and then three, God's will. The last three petitions concern human needs. This actually shows us something when you think about this. Okay. you got three in regards to God, three in regards to our human needs. Uh, but when you and I pray, how often do we pray for ourselves and kind of leave God's concerns out of the picture? I would dare say, usually, usually it's probably more like, you know, five and a half are human needs and maybe half is God's concerns, right? That's usually the way it is. God's concerns should come first. Let's take each one of these phrases one at a time here and quickly go through this, okay? First of all, we see, uh, that phrase there. Look at verse 9. It says, Pray then like this. Notice Jesus says, like this. He doesn't say, you know, repeat this every Sunday, uh, although, you know, that it's fine if you do that, as long as it's not repetitious or you're doing it to be ostentatious. But in this model prayer, Jesus says, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be Your name. What does that mean? The first petition is that the name of God might be honored. Hallowed has the idea of being honored Now, why is this so important? The the reason I think it's important is because God's name stands for Himself. His honor is is wrapped up in His name. He has revealed Himself in Scripture, in fact, not with just one name. He's revealed Himself in Scripture through many names. Therefore, to honor the names, to honor God, holding Him in the highest reverence and exalting Him above all others is something that's very important to God. What is the name of God that we should honor? You might ask. He says, because it says, "Hallowed be your name." Well, what, what which one do you use? There's lots of them. Well, I think you should use all of them. Frankly, the God's revealed Himself with these various names in Scripture. Why not use all of them? Many names of God. I'll just give you a few. Okay, some some of my favorite ones. Uh, some of these are probably the most well-known ones as well, but. Uh, the Bible says in Hebrew that God is Elohim. Elohim is in, in uh, Genesis one. He is the Creator of the heavens and the earth. God is El Elyon, the Most High God. He is Jehovah. He is Jehovah Jireh, which it means that God, He is the God who provides. He is Adonai, which means Lord. And in this prayer here, of course. Jesus introduces God here as our Father in heaven. Our Father in heaven. Well, that has great meaning, which we don't have time to get into, but one of the wonderful things about that is this this intimate relationship that you can have with the Creator of the universe. So, Hallowed Be Your Name shows us that God's first concern is His honor. Number two, he's concerned about his kingdom. Because it, look at the next phrase. It says, your kingdom come. What does that mean? Second petition has to do with God's reign or his rule. He's king. He is the ruler. Here the prayer is for God's rule in at least two senses, okay? Number one, we're praying that God would, that his rule would uh, be increasing in the lives of his people. Number two, may God's final messianic kingdom come soon. Are you praying for that? That's the very last thing Jesus said in, in the book of Revelation, by the way. Come, Lord Jesus. Are you praying for that? Is that your concern? Do you want Jesus to come? Or are you so wrapped up in your earthly life that you know it doesn't, doesn't really cross your mind that much? God's number two concern here is for His kingdom. Number three, third phrase is, Your will be done. God is concerned about His will. In the third petition here, we're asking for God's desires to actually thrive in our lives, to be healthy in our lives. We're praying that the day may quickly come when Sin is going to be ultimately judged, and sin will be done away with, and the whole universe is going to be willingly subject to God's will. When is that going to happen? That's going to happen in the kingdom, when Christ comes back. It's not happening now, is it? Certainly not. Well, number four finally gets to the human needs. Four, five, and six gets to the, our human needs. And number four says, to give us our daily bread. you praying for that? What is that, by the way? The fourth petition is not uh, praying just for mere bread alone. Okay, that, that's not what it's referring to. It, and by the way, it's not like what some old commentators used to think. It's, it's not praying for the bread of the Lord's Supper either. <laughs> that's not what it's talking about. This is referring to a, a prayer for real food for whatever and, and for whatever else we need to sustain ourselves physically. Okay? Not just for bread, but but any physical need, it is appropriate for you to pray for that. But notice, this is not the first thing you're to pray for. God's concerns are number one. So we're praying for God to give you the necessities of life for this day. For this day. Number five, Jesus says, pray like this, forgive us our debts. Forgive us our debts. What's that all about? Well, <clears throat> we're sinful creatures, right? You and I are sinful creatures. We, and since we're sinful creatures, what do we need? We need to be forgiven. We need our many sins to be forgiven. Now, how is that going to happen? How is that going to happen? Well, God provides forgiveness on the base of the substitutionary death of His Son, When Jesus Christ was on this earth and He willingly gave His life on the cross, He was your substitute. He took your place. You should have been nailed on the cross to pay the penalty for your sin. But He took your place. He died to death. You deserve to die. He paid the penalty for sin. All we have to do is believe that Christ is enough. And He's the only payment for the penalty of sin the question is do you believe that and then number six we're to pray for deliverance from evil pray from deliverance from evil in the sixth and the last petition we're asking for protection from satan himself we're praying for protection from the demons we're praying for protection from any other source of evil that you can think of Why? Because the the reason we need to pray for that is we need God's strength and protection to overcome temptations. Temptations are powerful. You and I cannot do this in our own strength. Galatians 5 says, walk in the Spirit and you'll not fulfill the lust of the flesh. Don't walk in your own strength. Walk in the Spirit, in His strength and power. So what does this model prayer teach us? What does this model prayer teach us? Number one, you should never use prayer to get attention. That is not the purpose of prayer. You say, why? Why shouldn't I use prayer to get attention? That's because prayer is, is, is meant to be a private communication between you and God. It, it should not be a, a public show of, of your, soul, your so-called spirituality. Number two, you should pray like you have a real intimate relationship with God. Hopefully, you do. Okay, the power of prayer is, by the way, it's based on quality, not quantity. Okay? Jesus was addressing the quality issue here. Okay, don't pray like the the pagans and the Gentiles who heap up all these empty phrases for long periods of time, thinking, you know, who that, that's the right thing to do. No, quality's the issue, not quantity. By the way, this doesn't mean that lengthy times of prayer are in and of themselves wrong, okay? You know, every year we have a day of prayer. That's a wonderful thing to do. Nothing wrong with that. Okay? But length must not become some magic formula between you and God and say, well, you know, hey, I had a whole day of prayer, so I'm more spiritual than all the other people who stayed at home. No. It's not a magic formula. You're not gonna, you know, get God's ear somehow because you prayed for two hours. (laughs) Don't use repetitious phrases and mantras thinking, hey, that's gonna make you more acceptable to God. No, it won't. You know, spinning prayer wheels and doing rosary beads or whatever else is not gonna make you any more acceptable to God. God desires an attitude of loving communication. It's a relationship. God speaks to us through his word. You speak to God through prayer. Number three, the heart of prayer is worship. The heart of prayer is worship. When we say, our Father who is in heaven, we're not just uttering some formal address. Okay, You can say that in other ways, by the way. You don't have to just say it that way. That is not the only way you can say that. But when we when we say things, phrases like that, we're celebrating a relationship. I have a father. He's my father in heaven. I'm celebrating this relationship. I mean, think about it. Can can you actually believe that? We are part of the family of God. Whoa. That's amazing truth. And you're celebrating every time you you pray in this manner. Number four, prayer is not just individual. That's one of the things we learn here. It's not just individual, it's also corporate. And the reason we know that is, look at all the, the pronouns and the verbs. The pronouns are plural. Our Father in Heaven. Okay? Give us Forgive us our debts. We also have forgiven our debtors. Lead us not into temptation. They're all plural. That's because prayer is not just individual. It's also corporate. So this means prayer is meant to be uttered in a community. It's totally appropriate to pray in church or some midweek prayer time together as well. God didn't make us to be some rugged individualist. Not how he made us. Number five, God, put, we, we need to put God's concerns first. Jesus deliberately placed God centered issues first. Okay? That means that true prayer means that, that our greatest priority is to honor God in our lives and to do his will. That's God's concern, and it should be ours as well. Number six, you should bring your personal needs to God in total dependence on Him, believing He hears and will answer. Do you believe that? you believe He loves you? He's concerned about your concerns? He is. Peter said, cast your cares upon Him because He cares for you. Number seven, God's community is all about forgiveness and reconciliation. That's, God is all about that. He says in verse 12, Forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. God's all about forgiveness and reconciliation. In fact, we, we, we saw that in chapter 5 as well. Jesus talked about seeking reconciliation when anger has broken a community apart, has broken relationships. Seek reconciliation, Jesus says. Reconciliation, how's, you say, how is that accomplished? It's accomplished by the injured party by the way jesus says the one who's been injured by the anger being willing to forgive the hurts that were caused by other people the injured party needs to 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 make things right here but in this passage jesus even goes further than that he says our reconciliation with god has um is is actually at stake here it's not just a a horizontal thing between you and someone else. Jesus is saying, your reconciliation will affect your relationship with God. It's also a vertical issue. So the Christian who has a broken relationship with another Christian also has a broken relationship with their God. That's how serious this issue is. Let's move on to the third illustration Jesus gives. Jesus says, "Don't be a hypocrite by fasting so you can appear spiritual." <laughs> That's not what it's about. By the way, again, Jesus is saying, you know, don't stop fasting. Okay, Jesus is saying, when you do fast, and He's assuming that you will, this is how you should act. All right? So don't be a hypocrite when you're fasting. And again, He gives the same warning. In verse 16, don't seek people's praise. Look at verse 16. A. When you fast, he's assuming you will, when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces that their fasting may be seen by others. (laughs) Now let me explain that. This is interesting that... uh, They, they weren't commanded to do this, but the Pharisees fasted every Monday and Thursday, even though God didn't command them to do this. Their fasting was often coupled with the wearing of sackcloth and ashes or, or even the tearing of their clothes. Man, they, when they did it, they, they did it well. (laughs) These hypocrites, Jesus calls them, went out of their way to make sure that everybody knew they were fasting. And and they wanted to be seen in the process of this fasting. In fact, Jesus mentions their gloomy faces. <laughs> right? He mentions their gloomy faces. And why would they have gloomy faces? Because they wanted everybody else to know they were fasting. Gloomy, by the way, there that word gloomy in the Greek means solemn, dismal, sad, signifies a deliberate attempt to be conspicuous by looking unhappy. You ever met that kind of a person? Some people do that even when they're not fasting. right? Every Monday morning, you know, you probably got one of those workmates. Every Monday morning, you know, they got the gloomy face on, right? that that's, that's the idea here. Some people want attention. And so they put on the gloomy faces. They wanted attention. And so they put on the gloomy face. Hey, you know, here, I'll even rip my clothes, put on sackcloth. Man, I'm really sad because I'm fasting. Jesus says, don't seek people's praise. Instead, you know, if, you're, if you're going to do that, the result is you're going to get a reward, but it's only going to be here on earth. Look at verse 16 again. Verse 16. He says, truly, at the end of verse 16, truly I say to you, they have received their reward. They wanted people's attention. That is their reward. They bought it, and they don't get anything in heaven. But Jesus commands us to do our fasting privately. Look at verse 17. But, here's the contrast. I love that word, but. It's a contrast. But when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face, that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. So the command there is, while you're fasting, do it privately. Don't 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 let other people know that you're fasting. It, the, it's not some showy display. That's not what it's about. As I was studying this, I found that in Bible times the Greeks would uh, often oil their bodies after exercise. Yeah. Some of you might think that's disgusting, but if you know anything about the Greeks, you know they, they love to show off their bodies. You know you, you've seen all the statues which don't look like real men. You know. The statues, you know, everybody's just, you know, they're carrying the six-pack, and, you know, big, broad shoulders, strong guys, you know, no hair on their bodies, you know, perfect specimens, not not, not like any of us, of course. But the Greeks, they'd oil their bodies after exercise, and then they would, they'd actually scrape off the sweat and the oil with some curved instrument. They wanted perfect-looking bodies. The Jews they'd put oil on their skin as well, not for exactly the same purposes, but um, apparently they would uh, especially anoint their heads with oil. Uh, maybe from what I found, maybe for for the purpose of lubricating dry scalps. You know, they didn't have all these fancy shampoos that we have nowadays, or all these other fancy lotions that we have, and so they they would sometimes use oil. And Jesus' point here is. He's saying when when you're when you're fasting, fix yourself up. You know? Don't, don't go out and look like you've had some bad hair day. You know, you don't go out into public with no makeup on, with you know, not having washed your hair, cleaned, and combed your hair. You know, clean yourself up. Look normal. Whatever that is. You know, when you're fasting, you know, don't don't make it look like you're actually fasting. If you normally wear makeup, put on makeup you yeah. wash your hair comb your hair do those sort of things okay don't be gloomy <laughs> fasting must always be done not for the admiration of others Jesus is saying but for the worship of God and him alone but if if you're doing it to bring attention to yourself who are you really worshiping then whoa do you see the problem here this becomes an issue of idolatry now doesn't it becomes an issue of idolatry. I'm now doing this to worship me. Whoa. If my my whole motive is to bring attention to me, to lift me up, to exalt me, then I'm the God. I'm the God. And there's only one God. And he will not give his glory to another. So when fasting becomes a performance, then it ceases to be a righteous activity. It becomes ungodly. So what is the true goal of fasting then the the true goal of fasting should be it should be a, a a private communion with god that's the purpose so jesus says okay if you fast in privacy not to be just showing off if you do this he said god says i will reward you look at verse 18 verse 18 He says, verse 18, that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. So again, whose reward do you want? You can buy your reward here on earth, or you can give it away in heaven and let your heavenly Father reward you. That's your choices. God will reward you if you do it in privacy. Well, here's what one commentator said about fasting. This was helpful to think about. He says this, Quote, Fasting is closely connected to prayer and therefore connotes an intense relationship and communion with God. But too many use it almost as magic to get God to answer their prayers. That is, to so convince God of their sincerity that He will say yes to their request. It is good to fast during times of crisis but to center more on god and not in the mistaken belief that this practice will be more efficacious even than prayer End quote. jesus is saying by all means fast nothing wrong with that but again it's it's not magic it's not magic okay god is not going to be you know accepting you any more than the person who's just praying. That's not why you do it. Okay. Jesus again coming, he's saying, "I didn't come to abolish the law; I came to fulfill it." And he gives us again several examples, three examples here, of what uh, Jewish piety was, you know, all about—things like alms giving or giving to the poor things like praying, things like fasting. These are just some examples. Okay, By all means, Jesus says, go ahead and do them, but make sure your motive is for pleasing me. Do it in private, not to be seen and heard by other people. My friends, I, again, I ask you, are you a hypocrite? Are you like that Greek actor who puts on the, Who puts on the mask, the oversized mask with oversized emotions on the mask, hiding behind it, nobody knows who he really is. Playing something he's really not. Is that you? Is Jesus describing you here? Okay. And by the way, you say, well, I'm not doing any giving or praying like this or fasting, so this doesn't apply to me. Oh, yes, it does. (laughs) Yes, it does. Think about it in other areas of your life. Why do you do what you do? For example, why do you come to church? Well, hopefully it's because you love God. Hopefully you're not coming just to be seen by people, and, and, and so people will see you and think, hey, I'm spiritual, I'm, I'm godly, I've got it all together. No, that's not why we do it. Why do you read your Bible? Why do you pray? Why do you witness why do you go to Bible conferences, ladies' Bible studies? Okay, the list could go on and on. Why do you do those things and other things? The motive is very important. God sees your heart. Ask God to search your heart. See if there be any wicked way in there. There might be. My friend, if there is, the good news is God knows. He sees. It's a sin, yes. The good news is we can confess our sin to a God who is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Jesus died for the sin of hypocrisy as well. When He took your place on the cross some 2,000 years ago, He died for hypocrisy, which is essentially idolatry. My friend, there is hope for the sinner who runs to Jesus and pleads for mercy and for grace, which of course we do not deserve. May we not be hypocrites. May we be real. May we be genuine. May we, may we do the things because we love God and other people.